Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to Psalm 54, our sermon text this morning is Psalm 54. And out of respect for the word of God, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of the word today. Psalm 54, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name. And vindicate me by your might, O God. Hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord. For it is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray and ask God's blessing to us on his word uh, today. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that you have given us your scriptures, that you have given us uh, all these different types of things in your word, including psalms, uh, songs, poems, wisdom, literature, history, uh, letters, all these things. We thank you that you have given all the scriptures to us that we might be uh, taught and instructed and at times rebuked and uh, exhorted and all these things that you might uh, make us ready, fully equipped and ready for every good work. Uh, Give us grace today, work in us by your spirit that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, Psalm 54, as you probably picked up on as we were reading, Psalm 54 is a prayer. It's a song, but it's a prayer for deliverance. It's a prayer for salvation. Uh, The superscription, the little little note above the the body of the psalm, uh, they don't always have one, but sometimes they give us the historical background of whatever was going on, uh, either when the, the psalm was written or what was in David's mind or the writer's mind when he was writing the particular psalm. Uh, and so the, the superscription here gives us the background, what was going on when David wrote this prayer uh, for deliverance. And this kind of background information, I think, is helpful sometimes. It helps us understand not just what David's saying, but why he's saying it. And so, thankfully, the Lord gave us this here. And what does this one say? It says that when David wrote this psalm, or, or the context of what he was writing about, was, quote, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Now, this is referring to a, an episode back in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 19 to 29. And if you read on in 1 Samuel, you'll find that in chapter 26, it happens again. So these Ziphites, these men of the tribe of Judah, uh, betrayed David and almost got him killed at least twice. This was no small thing. They, they practically turned him over to Saul more than once, which would have resulted in him being killed. Now, earlier in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, you're probably familiar, uh, many of you, with this particular part of the chapter. It's when David was hiding out in the wilderness of Ziph that Jonathan, the son of Saul, oddly enough, his best friend was his worst enemy's son. Uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, the friend of David, met David and, quote, Verse 16 says, he strengthened his hand in God. He knew David was in trouble. He went and found David, strengthened his hand in God. This is what he told him. 
1 Samuel 23, 17, he says, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. Why was Saul chasing David? Because Saul knew this. It's like the evil one. He knows his time is short, and so he rages. And because he can't touch Christ, he can't lay a finger on him. What does he try to do? He tries to lay a finger on on God's people, those who are in Christ, the body of Christ. And Jonathan tells David, do not fear. Well, what happened next? Did Jonathan tell David, do not fear, and then everything was easy, and you know the skies... The clouds parted and, you know, David's next year was sitting in a hammock, sipping Mai Tais or something. No, the very next thing in the same chapter is this. The Ziphites handed him over or tried to hand him over to Saul. I'll read a good portion of that chapter, 1 Samuel 23, just to give you an idea of what, what they did. It says, verse, 1 Samuel 23, verses 19 to 24. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, this is the quote, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh, on the hill of Achilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Now they knew what Saul wanted to do to David, didn't they? There was no mystery here. They knew David was hiding for, for a reason. It says, and Saul said, Imagine this coming from the, the, the mouth of a reprobate, Christ-hating person. But he says, may you be blessed by the Lord for betraying the Lord's anointed. He's saying this. May you be blessed by the Lord. Sounds like Balaam you know, giving a, trying to give a curse that God did not uh, allow him to do. What, what's Saul doing there? Saul is breaking the third commandment. Saul is taking the name of the Lord in vain. By doing that, by trying to call a blessing on those who would betray the Christ, uh, the the anointed king of, of God. May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went as if ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. So it almost sounds like Saul's afraid of David. Let's make really sure you know exactly where he is because we know how cunning he is. David's a slippery character. And what did Saul think might happen? <coughs> David might get the jump on it. Maybe it was a trap. You'll know later on in this very same book, uh, not much longer after this, Saul goes into a cave and where's David? In the cave. And does David reach his hand and touch to strike the Lord's anointed king? No, he does not do that. But then in the next passage, verses 25 to 29, this is what it says. And Saul and his men went to seek him. So they finally went. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, 
Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So David called that rock the Rock of Escape. Why? Because the rock did something? Was the place somehow, you know, was it just, hey, this is my lucky rock now because I just happened to be here when Saul just happened to be told about the Philistines and ran away and hid. No, he called it the rock of escape because he called it that commemorating God's deliverance of him from the hand of his killer, of King Saul. Now, just how close did David and his men come to being captured and killed? What does it say in verse 26? That, That Saul and his men were what? Closing in on David and his men. David was uh, between a rock and a hard place, literally. A a rock and hard place being Saul. Impending doom must have seemed all but certain to David. And so what does David do? The psalm tells us David prayed to the Lord for salvation and deliverance. And what happened? What happened? What just so happened that just as Saul was about to capture David... Saul received a report that the Philistines were attacking the land. They were invading Israel. And so it just so happened that Saul inexplicably turned back from pursuing David so that he could go up against those Philistine invaders. Now, did David see that as a coincidence? Did David lean back against the rock and say, Ooh, that was a lucky break. That was a close one. Um, You know, good things happen to, you know, I must be living right. He didn't say any of those kinds of things, right? Uh, He gave that rock in the wilderness a name. He called it the Rock of Escape. And the rock wasn't a piece of stone. The rock was his God. David knew that his deliverance from the hand of Saul was given by the invisible hand of God's providence. In answer to his prayer. He knew that, and so he praised God, even calling that rock. Whenever, Whenever David would see that rock, what did he think of? God's deliverance, that God was faithful to deliver his people. And so I asked this morning, is the Lord your rock of escape? Is the Lord your shelter? Do you believe that God still hears and answers prayers, the prayers of his people today? Does God answer prayer? Well, I certainly hope so. We pray a lot during the service, right? Uh, we do believe that God answers prayer because the scriptures teach it in here and every other place like it. Well, some of you may have seen the recent film uh, Dunkirk. If you're a World War II Uh, aficionados, you may have gone to see that. And if you don't know what it's about, it tells the remarkable story of a rescue in May of 1940 of over 330,000 British and allied troops. Now, those troops had been overrun and driven to the sea by the German army. They were stuck on the beaches at Dunkirk in the north of France, just below Belgium. They were just across the English Channel from Britain and from their home. Now, if you know the story, they're sitting ducks. You've heard of ducks in a a barrel or or fish in a barrel. These were fish in a barrel stuck on the beach with nowhere to go. It almost brings to mind the exodus. The the army's coming this way and there's water and nowhere to get across. Now, God didn't part the sea or any such thing like that. But they were sitting ducks. They were surrounded. They were squeezed on all sides by the German tanks and by the Luftwaffe in the air. And if you know, if the German army had captured or killed those men, World War II would have been over before it even began. Now, King George VI, you might know, on on May 26th of that year, 
he called for a national day of prayer. This is not featured in the movie, but I wish it had been. Now, can you imagine what would happen in our land today if our president did such a thing? I know Christians who would be outraged by that because they don't, they don't think that the church and state should have any possible, that, that's a, a brick wall that nothing should cross, and, and you know, God forbid a public figure invoke the name of God. Uh, he might not believe exactly like we do, and so that would be a terrible thing. I know many that would think of that to be a bad thing, but I will say it's not a bad thing if we were to do that. Any acknowledgement of God in public should be thought of as a good thing in my, in my estimation. Now, some accounts of that day of prayer on that Sunday estimate that there were millions of British citizens, many of whom probably didn't normally go to church at all, flocking into the churches throughout the country, throughout England, seeking divine mercy and help in their nation's time of need. The rest is history. One writer puts it this way. He says, two events immediately followed. Firstly, a violent storm arose over the Dunkirk region, grounding the Luftwaffe, which had been killing thousands on the beaches. In other words, all of a sudden they couldn't fly. Secondly, a great calm descended on the channel, the likes of which had not been seen for a generation, which allowed hundreds of tiny little boats to sail across and rescue 335,000 soldiers, rather than the estimated 20 to 30,000. In other words, they thought most of them were going to die, and they might be able to get just a remnant back. From then on, people referred to what happened as, quote, the miracle of Dunkirk. Sunday, June 9th, was officially appointed as a day of national thanksgiving. Did the people in Britain think it was coincidence? Not in 1940, they didn't. Winston Churchill himself apparently took to calling it the miracle of, of Dunkirk. You know, God's providential deliverance of those British soldiers was surely an answer to prayer. The British were not wrong. The people who prayed were not wrong or out of line to say confidently that was God's answer to prayer. He answered through his providential care and protection. Well, so much for the background of the psalm. And I hope that we believe that that's not something that God doesn't answer prayer today. That we, you know, we sometimes think, well, you know, the, in the back in the Bible times, God answered prayer. Maybe back in hundreds of years ago, God answers prayer. God answers prayer. Uh, he answers prayer today. Well, let's look at the psalm itself, the body of the psalm itself. Uh, the first thing you see is, is uh, David's prayer in verses 1 through 2. Now, the account in 1 Samuel that we read doesn't say anything about David praying, does it? But we know from Psalm 54 and from common sense that David prayed. And this is what he says in verses 1 through 2. He begins the psalm by prayer and saying, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. So David prayed for God, to God to save him and to vindicate him. He implored God to hear his prayer, to give ear to the words of his mouth. And, you know, David's enemies, Saul and his army, his enemies were powerful. They were persistent in pursuing him. They were too big for him to handle. David didn't have the option of standing his ground and fighting. It would have been a pretty quick defeat. So he prayed to God. He looked to his God for deliverance. And so I asked this morning, I know this is the case in many of your lives. Have you ever been faced with something so big and so terrible in your life that you knew that only God himself could deliver you. Something that was too big for you. You know, people often say 
something silly. They say, God will never give you something too big for you to handle. That's a lie. Of course he does. If he didn't, you'd never need God. You'd always be saying to God, I've got this. This is within my pay grade. I can handle this with God. I'll let you know if I need you. But we need him a lot more than we, than we realize. Did it drive you to prayer? Sometimes when problems come, sometimes it does the opposite. We get upset. We get discontented. We grumble against God's providence, his wise and good providence in our lives. And so we do the opposite of prayer. But does it drive you to prayer? Have you had things happen in your life like that that drove you to your knees in prayer? So that's what happened to David. David went to God in prayer. He cried out to God. He also cried out to God about his, about his enemies, about who they were. In verse 3, he says, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. Now, those strangers, those Ziphites, and that sounds like an odd name for a, a group of people, they were of the tribe of Judah. Were the Ziphites of the tribe of Judah strangers? They shouldn't have been. They were his people. They were his compatriots, or they should have been. They were his countrymen. They were supposed to be his countrymen. But by means of, of, of their wickedness in betraying David, God's anointed king, they showed themselves to be strangers. These blood brothers that at least they were supposed to be were actually David's. They were strangers to him. Now, how could men of the tribe of Judah act so wickedly? I mean, how could Saul act that wickedly, right? David was God's anointed king. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a small thing to show him this unkindness and hatred. How is it that they acted so wickedly? He tells us in verse 3. He says, he says, they do not set God before themselves. What's David saying? Here's, here's why they act this way. Here's the only explanation for their wickedness against David is they do not set God before themselves. They suppressed the truth of God and kept God out of their thinking. And so it was not long before they engaged in all manner of wickedness, even against the Lord's anointed king. That's, that's how it works. We refuse to acknowledge God or keep God in our thinking, and pretty soon we're capable of some pretty heinous and wicked things. And so I, I would say that uh, you know, in our in our day, uh, many many seem to want to drive God out of the public square, and I say, be careful what you wish for. You drive God out of the public square, pretty soon people are going to be let loose of all restraint and do things they would never normally. You would never normally think that people would be capable of doing. Well, surely it's no coincidence that in the previous Psalm, Psalm fifty three, the very first verse says, "The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God." That's Psalm 53, verse 1. Well, here in this Psalm 2, we see a continuation of that theme. You might call it practical atheism. If you had asked the Ziphites, does God exist? Does, does Yahweh exist? They would have said, certainly. Even Saul, remember in the text, what did Saul say? May you be blessed by the Lord, Yahweh. It's all in capitals. May Yahweh, the, our covenant God, bless you for betraying the Lord's anointed, is really what he was saying. Because he hated David. And he hated what David stood for. It's practical atheism. These Ziphites of the tribe of Judah, by their betrayal of David, who was the anointed king of Israel, showed themselves to kind of be the spiritual ancestors of the unbelieving Pharisees and scribes who hated Christ and sought his destruction at every turn in the Gospels. We're re reading about that even now in the Gospel of Mark. Well, David here is not just an example for persecuted, uh, afflicted believers. You know, this is something that we should look at. 
When you look at David on the run from Saul, uh, you know, you see a picture of persecuted believers even in our day. But he's more than that. He's also a type of Christ who was to come. He is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's true anointed king, the Messiah, who was pursued unto death by those among Israel who should have been among his most devoted disciples. When we read the Gospels, and you know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, and I hope that you've been reading your Bible for years and decades, and so when you read the Gospel texts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, sometimes it's, you know, I want to say old hat, but you know the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. You, you kind of lose the punch sometimes. You shouldn't. It's not the Scripture's fault. It's our fault. But when you read Pharisees and scribes seeking Christ's destruction, it should shock you. It should shock me. Of all the people that should have believed, it should have been them, and yet they were the ones seeking his destruction, plotting with the Herodians. They were the ones that had him betrayed. They were the ones that wanted to have him killed the most. That's what depravity and sin, left unchecked, left unrestrained, looks like. But David here is a, is a foreshadowing of Christ, who was betrayed by those, pursued by those, who should have been his most devoted disciples, and he was even betrayed with a kiss by one of the twelve, by Judas Iscariot. Well, the second thing we see in our psalm is not just David's prayer in the first three verses, but we see David's help. David's help in verses 4 through 5. He even says this, he tells us to behold. Look at this. Take a close look at this, he says, uh, behold his help, as great and fearful as David's enemies were, as powerful as they were, even as they were closing in on him to capture him and kill him. David, remember what, remember what he said about his enemies in verse 3? His, his enemies did not what? They did not set God before him. Well, David wasn't going to make the same mistake. His enemies set, did not set God before him. Well, David was going to set God before him, and David was going to pray. And so what does he say in verses 4 to 5? Behold, look at this. Behold, God is my helper. God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies and your faithfulness put an end to them. What a wonderful confession of faith that is for David at a terrible time in his life. That he was able to say, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Think about how powerful David's enemies were. It's easy to overlook that. We think of David and say, well, David, God used him to kill Goliath, this 10-foot giant with weaponry so large that David probably had trouble lifting the sword he used to, to cut off Goliath's head from Goliath's own hands. But Saul and his, his army was, you know, humanly speaking, was unstoppable. David, on his own, humanly speaking, had no chance. But David here reminds himself, he reminds you and I this morning, he reminds us, that his enemies, as powerful as they were, paled in significance when David brought God back into the picture. Who is, who is your help? Who is David's help? God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. God was his helper. As Paul would say later on in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Paul's not saying you won't have enemies. Paul's not saying, hey, Christian, no one will ever try to be against you. He's saying, if God is for you, good luck with that to the enemies of God's people. They don't, they don't have a chance. You know, when you look at that story, I think of that story of the story of David and Goliath back in, in 1 Samuel 17, I, I think we read it backwards. 
because we don't read it with the eyes of faith. It was an unfair fight. Who was it unfair against? Who, who had the odds worse against him, David or Goliath? Goliath did. And David knew it. David wasn't being cocky when he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to stand against the armies of the Lord? He's saying, what are you guys waiting for? How come somebody hasn't volunteered yet? This guy's a dead man. He's dead man walking. Dead giant walking. You know, if you've got to do it myself here, let me get some rocks. You know, he doesn't even take armor or a sword. He uses Goliath's sword. Remember, he says, I'm going to kill you and... I'm going to, you know, cut off your head. Well, what was he talking? He was, I'm going to take your sword. Notice I don't have one. You know, yours will do just fine. <laughs> and he cut off Goliath's head. Well, can you say that along with, with David, that God himself is your helper? Not just a helper. Is God your helper in Christ? Then look to him often, especially in time of trial. Look to him in prayer. Keep God set before you in your heart and in your mind, our call to worship, Psalm 91, the first couple of verses says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He's saying, doesn't matter what comes up against me, that's what I'm going to say. My refuge, not just a refuge, my refuge, not just a fortress, my fortress, my what? My God. Well, if the Most High is your shelter, you dwell secure no matter what comes your way in this life, in this veil of tears. If the Lord himself is your refuge and your fortress, if he is your God in whom you trust in Christ, then you, like David, have a rock of escape that cannot fail you and will not fail you in time of trial. Not only that, but David, you know, David would leave vengeance to the Lord in this case. And he stayed steadfast to that. When he had a chance later on in 1 Samuel to kill Saul, he did not do it. He refused to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. What does he say? He, he trusted vengeance to the Lord. He says, to God, return the evil to his enemies. And in his faithfulness, put an end to them. Verse 5. Whereas David's not saying, you know, we get sentimental sometimes and we say, well... You know, we don't want to seem like, you know, jerks or whatever, even though I, you know, I can be a jerk. But we, we can say, well, you know, we don't want to talk about judgment, about God judging our enemies or God judging the wicked. Um, David didn't have that problem. David did not take vengeance into his own hands, but David rejoiced that the, that the judge of all the earth would do right. That God would make all the wrongs right. All the evils done to the people of God will be made right one day. Every last one of them. That God will judge the wicked, even those who persecute and martyr his people and put forth their hand to touch the apple of God's eye. The fact that God will judge those, those souls should be a source of great comfort to believers. It has been a source of comfort to believers in every age. And we read about such things, not just in the Old Testament, not even just in the book of Revelation, which we do see it there. Uh, we read it all through scripture. That God will judge one day the wicked. He will avenge the wrongs done. He will one day make all the wrongs right, even the wrongs suffered by God's people for their faith in Christ. God will make all that right, and that is a source of comfort. In the book of Revelation, what does it say? The souls around the throne were saying, How long, O Lord, you know, till you avenge our blood? And God doesn't say, Oh, don't be silly. I'm not going to do that. He says to wait. It's going to happen. 
and, and they would see it with their own eyes. One day our faith will become sight if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ. And one day you will see with your own eyes the triumph of the Lamb. And you will know that, that we have been more than conquerors, as Paul says, through him who loved us. Right now we know it by faith. One day you will know it by sight. You will see that you have been more, more than a conqueror through him, through Christ who loved us. Well, the last thing we see here in the psalm is we saw David's prayer, we saw David's help, and now we see David's praise in verses 6 through 7. Uh, for all of God's mercies in delivering David in his time of distress and danger, David would praise God. Verses 6 through 7, he says, With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. David vowed to give a, a free will offering to God, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God. He would give thanks to the name of his God, because what does he say? For it is good to give thanks to God. It pleases God. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, none, none can praise the Lord so well as those who have tried and proved the preciousness of his name in seasons of adversity. You need more than music lessons to learn how to praise God. And sometimes those lessons of faith in life are the things when God gets you through times of trial, that enables you to praise God better than you used to be able to do. So pray to the Lord in times of trouble. Be sure to give him the thanks and praise that he so richly deserves. Brothers and sisters this morning, do you know that as believers in Christ, you and I have more reason to praise and thank God uh, the Lord, than we can ever fully understand. No matter what's going on in your life right now, which many of you are going through trials that, uh, that are, are more than a little bit difficult and, and vexing, but we have more reason to thank and praise our, our Savior than we can possibly begin to, to say or, or to know. If we're in Christ, he saved us not just from earthly enemies like David being rescued from Saul, but he saved us from our worst enemies. He saved us from our sins. Not somebody else's sins, our sins, my sins, your sins. He saved us from death itself, from the grave. One day he will raise all of his people bodily from the grave. He has rescued us from the evil one and from <laughs> hell itself. And so is there a sacrifice? You know, David says that he's going to give a sacrifice to God, a free will offering. What sacrifice do you and I offer to God for his mercies in Christ. Not a, we're not sacrificing animals. We don't do that anymore because Christ died. What did Rob say this morning from Hebrews? Once for all. The one sacrifice for sin that actually atoned for sin has been made once and for all on the cross of Christ. Well, Paul in Romans chapter 12 mentions a sacrifice that we can give. He says, you know, in, in view of the mercies of God, what? Offer your bodies, your bodies, not just your emotions, your bodies as what? living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And do not any longer be conformed to, to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Your life, my life, that's, that's the sacrifice we give to God, is, is offering our bodies as living sacrifices in all that we do and seeking to know and to do his will. That's the thanks that God wants. Sounds kind of like Exodus 20, verse 2, doesn't it? Funny how, that, funny how that is so consistent. Well, notice that in verse 1, David cried out, uh, might sound like a strange phrase to our ears, to save him what? By your name. 
Now in verse 6, what does he say? He's going to give thanks to what? Same thing, your name, O Lord, for it is good. Notice, that's another theme you'll find throughout Scripture. The name of the Lord, Proverbs 18.10, it's on the front of your bulletins. The name of the Lord is what? A strong tower, the righteous, the righteous man runs into it and is what? Safe. God's name, because God's name represents him. God reveals himself by his name. Acts 4.12 says similarly about the preciousness of the name of Jesus Christ to every believer's heart. It says, and there is, no, there is salvation in no one else. Why? For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Sounds like the name of the Lord has always been very important. Third commandment should teach us that. Not to take the name of the Lord. God's name is important. It should not be taken in vain. Is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ your strong tower this morning? There is no other name given under heaven by which you must be saved. And if you are in Christ by faith, then you can say along with David, for he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. One day, right now you look on, on your enemies, uh, you know, you look on their, your triumph over them by faith. One day by sight, you will look on triumph on all of your enemies and the enemies of Christ. What a wonderful Savior Jesus Christ is, the name of our, of our Savior, that all these things are things that we can confess right along with David and sing right along with him. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, these, these accounts in the life of David that, that we can learn so much from, that this uh, man of faith, uh, not a perfect man, not a sinless man, but this man who served you sincerely by your grace, uh, that he looked to you for salvation when there was no hope, and you delivered him. And we, we give you praise that we, we can call upon the name of the Lord, and that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you that, that you've sent your son to be the savior of sinners like us, not the, not the savior of good people, but the savior of, of the wicked, that you justify the wicked, wicked people just like us, by faith in Jesus Christ, your son. We thank you that... In him, the righteousness of Christ is given to us, imputed to us by faith that we can stand before you forgiven and accepted by you as righteous in your sight only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord, accounted to us by faith. And we do ask this morning that if anybody here does not yet know you, has not called upon you for salvation, that you would uh, draw them to faith in Christ even today, that you might receive all the glory. And we thank you and praise you for that one day we who are in Christ, will look in triumph on our enemies because they have been conquered by Christ himself. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.